Welcome to PBC Talks. If you would like to find out more information, please visit pbc.org.uk. for the uh, Hollywood hands-free system this morning because I need my hands to be free because I've got something to show you later. Right. Right. I need to pray, so let's just do it all again. Lord, this is a a long passage and it's meaty and it's a bit tricky in places and I don't want it to be lost uh, with me. So please, Lord, take whatever I say and turn it into something useful. Um, If there are things which are wrong, then let them be forgotten. If there are things which are true and they come from you, then let them be the words that go into the broken soil to take root and to germinate and turn into something wonderful. Holy Spirit, I need your help this morning to to take the soil, to to break it up, to do a work while I'm talking so that when we get to the end, uh, you can do what you want to do. And that's the way it's got to be. So Lord, please help me this morning to be heard and to be understood, and if necessary, be forgotten. Amen. So... How's your CV looking? Um, I haven't refreshed mine since 2013, uh, and since I've told my boss in two years' time I'm retiring, there's not much point now in updating it. That is unless my wife Sally decides that I'll be better used at B&Q than at home in our retirement years. So what, but what do you put into a CV? You know, you'll have your, your job history, you'll have your skills and your hobbies, and obviously you'll put in your achievements, all those tasty morsels that describe and capture what you've contributed to your current employer, the things that make you valuable. So it's going to be the projects that you delivered, it's going to be the problems that you solved and overcame, it'll be the staff that you, you grew and nurtured and developed, and it's going to be the money you save the company with all your clever transitions and transformations. The purpose of the CV, as I can remember, is only one thing, and that is to get you an interview. That's it. When it's done, it's done, but the reason it's there is to get you into that interview room, because when the person who's collecting the applications for this job, he'll have 50 or a ridiculous number of bits of paper or electronic bits of paper to look at, and Having been through it myself, I know they just want any reason to put it in the bin. Anything at all that they don't like, ah, no, in the bin. Which means that it will be a very brave or foolish person who takes their failures and lists them on the CV. Why would you do such a thing? Because it will go in one direction only, not into the possibles list. And yet, in this chapter of Jonathan, of Joshua, that's what they do. They've just had two brilliant episodes with crossing the River Jordan when it was in flood and getting through the walls of Jericho to conquer the city. And yet immediately after that, you know, back to back pretty much, 
is this episode where they get absolutely thumped. And there's a turnaround. Why? Why, why didn't the author reduce this you know, long chapter plus a bit at front and back at the end? Why did he take that chapter and reduce it down to a couple of lines or just leave it out completely like a good CV? There's a reason, and that's what we're going to explore this morning. So the background of where we are today, this is number five. You know, well done. We started this series in April, and we're getting towards the end now, so in June it'll come to a finish. And through this series, what's been pulled out, apart from a spelling mistake, is courage. Courage is what we've been trying to draw out from the series of the courage that the people of God, which is us, need to have to serve him and to grow in him. So, um, last week, it was why the word of God is the manufacturer's manual for the people who need to live and grow. It's our operating handbook. Follow that and you won't go wrong. Before that, we had the, the miraculous crossing of the Jordan. We had Joshua leading his people and how he was uh, uh, taking them from the wilderness into the promised land. And then more recently, we had the, the walls coming down and the miraculous things that God can do when we pay attention. Now, the central principle, these three or four or five chapters, is simple enough. God speaks, Joshua listened, and then carried out his detailed commands, and then victory followed. Four easy steps to conquering Canaan. What could possibly go wrong with that method? This week's Joshua 7 shows us what can go wrong if you don't do. It starkly contrasts the possibilities for Israel if they do what God says to the harsh reality and consequence of when they disobey God. So, let's find out why. Let's try and understand. So, settle down. It took me six minutes to read this aloud yesterday, so it's a long passage, but it's full of death and betrayal and theft and stonings. And so it's quite interesting, so, so go along with this. It'll be on the screen as well. Hill. To give you a break from a voice, uh, I've got the lovely Hillary to come and read it for me. So it's Joshua starting the back end of chapter 6 and following through to the front end of chapter 8. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that, are in, um, that is in it are to, de to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies that we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron 
are sacred to the Lord and must be kept in his treasury. But the Israelites were unfaithful in, in regard to the devoted things. Archon, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all of the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, but only a few, because only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israels from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted with fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us out of the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out the, our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. And violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things they've stolen. They've, they have lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turned their backs and ran because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him, Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Archon replied, It's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the, in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, with the silver underneath it. 
They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Archan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkey, and sheep, and uh, his tent and all that he had, to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then Israel stoned him, and after they'd stoned the rest, they burned them. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered it into your hand, delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off the plund- their plunder and livestock for yourselves and s- set an ambush behind the city. Thank you. Have the next slide, please, Jonathan. Success isn't permanent. It was all going so well. Joshua was leading bravely and faithfully. Israel had the faith-boosting experience of crossing the river and, and pulling down the walls. And it was just great. The Bible says to us there was no one killed in the Jericho battle. They got a wet feet crossing the river. So that was it. It was a brilliant result so far. And it looked good for the future. And in modern terminology, you could say they were on a roll. And they knew that. They thought that. But, but, just like you see, as you would find in a Hollywood movie these days, that's when disaster struck. And invincibility flipped over into a possible annihilation. How could this be? You know, God had promised them. God had visibly been with them. How, how could they possibly get into this situation? A puny place like A or AI or whatever you pronounce it, 30, they'd killed 36 of their soldiers. Yeah, not, not enough of soldiers, but for them, it was going from zero to 36 losses. 36 widows, 36 fathers, children, 36 grieving parents. You know, this was a serious thing that they'd suddenly come into. And not unreasonably, they'd expected to walk over this place. You know, with, with the, the size of the place that the spies had talked about, it didn't sound like it was going to be a problem. But the danger was now, they'd been thumped. The invincibility of Israel has now been exposed. If they haven't got God on their side to make everything go well, what are the enemies going to do? What are the other forces going to think? Their reputation had gone in the bin. Joshua was not expecting to be thrashed and chased by the people from that little town. In military terms, 3,000 troops should have been more than enough. But the thing is, God, as it said in the scripture, God wasn't with them. It's puzzling because they didn't notice that. The guarantor of Joshua and the people's success and victories was not working with them. In fact, he was working against them. Yet they turned him around to 
do you know, the unthinkable. And it was happening because God had pulled the plug out. Because one person had done something so outrageous against God that God could not support them anymore. You know, this, is, this is a common cycle you'll see in life. Right? You, the cycle of success and failure, of going well and going badly, of triumph and then crashing down. No elected political party that I can think of leads a country well indefinitely, or for a short time in our current case. You know, no business succeeds year after year without something going wrong eventually. You know, they, they launch products and some work and some don't work. No hospital has a perfect record for health or healing. It goes up and it goes down. And similarly, no church will have ongoing triumphant years. There'll be times when it goes well and there'll be times when it doesn't go well. Sooner or later, success skips away. Maybe temporarily, maybe forever. And then it's replaced by the only other option, what we call failure. In the eyes of our society, coming second or not even being on the podium is a fail. It's found its way even into our DNA. So we expect our heroes to win every time. And when they don't win, we drop them. What's been bred into us is that only winning matters. If we don't win, we're losers. That's the tune that our world sings to. But it's not God's tune. So we're in a church and we're doing it. So we shouldn't be surprised if we go well and then sometimes things don't go so well. God doesn't worry about success. He is not giving us success as our goal, our end point. For him, if we come second or 52nd or first, it's okay. Success comes from him. He brings the success, not us. It's not about our abilities necessarily. God cares about obedience above performance. He is more about character than successful results. Success is not permanent, but the next slide tells us failure isn't final. It's not the end if we don't get it right. Now, I'm going to shock you now. I'm, I, who am indifferent to sport of any type, am about to use several sporting analogies, so forgive me if I don't get them quite correctly. Modern culture has convinced us that being successful in all that we do is the pinnacle, is the summit. Is, that's what we should all be aiming for. That being the best will make us happy, will make us prosperous, will make us attractive. So we must pursue success and reject failure and people who fail. For example, do you care who comes second in the, loses in the final match of a tournament a year later? Probably not. You, we would struggle to remember who it was unless it happened to be your favorite team that lost. Similarly, if you think of a, a, a Tour de France cycling, Chris Froome, he won it in 
four years. Not successive, but he's won it four times. But last year, he came third. Now, are we going to remember him for the third place or because he won it four times? Success and winning have infused our culture as being really the only things that make people into folks of value, of heroes. But it's a lie. Back in, in 1997, Nike ran an advert um, featuring the basketball hero, Michael Jordan, convenient link to the river. All right, yeah, okay. Tenuous, but nonetheless. I'll read you the, um, the dialogue rather than playing the video. It takes too long. I won't do the accent either. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. Now, this is the basketball hero, one of the richest sportsmen ever, so I believe, who's very good, so I believe. You've probably heard of him. Um, oh, never mind. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot. Is that the appropriate gesture? Yep. And missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. And then the punchline comes up on the advert. Failure is part of the journey towards success. Not bad for a non-Christian. Not bad for a non-church. Joshua and the elders recognized this defeat wasn't down to military skill or ability or force. He and the elders tore their clothes and threw dust on their heads. And I'm thankful this is not part of the Baptist Union guidelines for leadership. So you don't see this in CLT. I have come across it in the 18 to 30s group with torn jeans, but that's probably... <laughs> it's a misinterpretation, I'm sure. They did these things, not because they were repenting that they got it wrong. You know, this is what the culture of the time said is what you do when you are in anguish and despair and you just don't know what's going on and there's been a tragedy happening in your family or in your nation. Sackcloth, ashes, torn clothes, prone on the floor before the Ark of the Covenant. You know, this is an act of desperation. They didn't know why this had happened. And that's why they went down to the covenant, to the, to the ark, to find out from God, what's going on? Why are we here like this? If you remember the passage, the people melted. What's the words they used? Their hearts melted and became like water. Fear penetrated and just destroyed their whole emotions so hopelessness would have been one of the things they were feeling I'm sure you would have seen hand wringing and terror of what's going to happen now they've lost but we see that Joshua and the leaders took a different route they went to the Lord to find out now what we need to see in this episode is how differently folks can react and respond to the F word to failure. Joshua and the elders reacted in a good way and they went looking for God. 
Right. Bold letters in my text here. The way we deal with failure as individuals and as a church is probably more important than the failure itself. I'll say that again. Not because it's profound, but because it's important. The way we deal with failure when it happens to us is more important than the details of the failure itself. Now, what happens to you when you don't get the results that you want from your job or from your thing at church or your thing in the garage or your thing in the shed? Or do you throw a strop and stamp off in a huff? Some folks express their disappointment and their anger before looking for someone to blame. Um, or maybe we, we get together a group and we analyze and we um, do a root cause analysis to identify what the corrective and preventative actions are for. You know, so this is, this is work talking now. So, so there, are, there are different ways of reacting and responding to when things go wrong in life. Because they do. They always go wrong. Now, Joshua did the slightly less emotional thing. He went to God to ask, you know, what is it? He didn't do analysis. He didn't think about it. He went to his Lord to find out what his Lord said was going on, what had happened. And in this case, God told him what was going on. He doesn't always tell us, but sometimes when he wants us to know, he makes it clear. And here he made it really clear. He said, what had happened and why. And the idea is that we learn, that we react to what God says and we react to our mistakes. And unusually, in this one, where it's normally us that got it wrong and us that have to fix our problem and deal with it and change, here it was unusual in that it was somebody in their camp, in their community, in their nation, who had done something so awful that had to be sorted and dealt with. How we respond to failure in our lives is really very important because it controls what we do next and it controls our future. The response that we have to failure is affected by our emotion. Like the people of Israel, their hearts just turned to water and fear took over. But it's also something you've got to take over in your head and decide, you know, this is the right thing to do now. Not panic. Not do a corporal... What was the corporal? Corporal Jones, Jones thank you very much. Or a corporal Fra oh, private Fraser. What did private Fraser say? We're doomed. That's it. Yeah, we're doomed. Sorry, excuse the accent. But you know, we, we don't need to do that. It's not appropriate. It's not going to get us anywhere, really. People react differently because it's about heart and head. Some people will react totally differently to the way I will react to the same disappointing results. Some will not do what I do. Perhaps I deny it. I, I wouldn't want to say. Or I ignore the results and carry on regardless. Head down, just keep going. It'll be fine. Even if you do the same thing again and again and again. It'll be fine. Just press on. Or maybe I give up and I never want to try this sort of thing again because I didn't get it right first time, therefore I'm not going to do it again. 
I'm not going to grow if I take that attitude because I will give up too easily and never learn anything, a new skill, a new activity, or serving God. I just, it's the wrong one. Now, do I get angry and throw my toys out of the cot? I think my wife and family will say, no, I don't. But it can happen because it's humiliating when things go wrong, when you fail, you don't get the job, you don't get the place on the team, you don't get the recognition because you've done something great. Toys out of the cot, definitely a no-no. Or, and this is the one I can speak from knowledge, the thought comes back to you. In a way, it haunts you. Come on. And at 4 a.m. every morning, you wake up. Keeps playing back in your head. Right, so... Does it do any of those things? If it melts your heart and causes you to go into downward spin, that's really not good. That's really not, not the right place to be. Does it say to you, you are a failure, you know? I told you this again and again, you are a failure. This, these are things that we need to get away from because those are the mindsets that will just lead to uh, a very sad and happy life. And God doesn't want us to have that. So how we respond to failure is more important than the failure itself. Which may be a popular question in interviews these days. Tell me about a failure you've had and how you dealt with it. So let's say Sally sends my CV into B&Q and I get the interview. And they ask me that question, what, what am I going to say? Tell me about a DMY failure. And I could say, well, how many would you like me to talk about? <laughs> and I happen to bring this one with me. This is not a miniature Walls of Jericho. Let's see if you can guess. Right, this is a present that I started building for my cousin's wife a little while ago. No, 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 no. Definitely in months. Definitely in months. Now, be any kind and gracious suggestions about what it might be? Oh, Eunice, that's not the answer to have first. No, I wanted things like, is it a scale model of a siege engine for Jericho? So, so that it's a miniature version, your Rahab can just slide out, and then... you bring out the siege engine part, and all the troops rush in. But as Eunice helpfully described, is to help a, an aging Labrador get into my aging cousin's car. He's aging, not the car. So it's to help him to get the car full of dog rather than his back seat full of dog. 
But also, it represents a failure in my life because A, her birthday was in April and it's still in my garage. <laughs> B, it isn't finished yet because I keep making mistakes. I keep measuring wrong, measure twice, cut once. Eunice told me a long time ago, I keep measuring mistakes and cutting mistakes. And C, I had to start again from scratch because I realized sometimes it, it's just best to admit, now you can't retrieve this anymore, get a fresh piece of wood and start again. A fresh start is a good thing. And it just takes a bit of humility and a few pounds at B&Q and you can do it again. However, it does illustrate on a positive note how even a self-taught carpenter, I say that word with inverted commas, a low-skilled woodworker can get there in the end, as long as they don't give up and they keep learning from the mistakes and don't do it again and again and again without changing. And they're willing to start afresh when they recognize this is not working. It's time to begin again. So. Joshua and his elders went prostrate. That's on the deck, flattened out, face down, before the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. And with his emotions, he showed God how desperate he was. And with his head, he chose to find out from God what on earth was going on? Where had they gone wrong? It's important that when we have disappointment, we don't turn away from God. When we have disappointment, we need to turn to him. And God responded. He responded with an explanation and a consequence. This had happened because of sin. Disobedience and dishonesty were at the root of this failure. You know, there's, a, there's a step sequence. Israel failed because God wasn't with them. God wasn't with them because there was sin. And there was sin because Achan saw something he liked and thought, I'll have this. It's rather pretty. Turning to God is what we need to do when failure and shock results come us. Now, God may not always answer, but if he wants to, let us know what it is he will one way or another. So the lesson in this episode this morning is don't let failure stop you or defeat you or prevent you from moving on. It's not the end. It's not final. And if you don't try to do something new, you will never encounter failure because you know, if you don't try, you don't have a chance. So don't let it block you from trying something new because you're not very keen on failure or the experience of it. Failure is part of the journey to success. And even success is part of the journey to God. So 
let's not get success in the wrong place in this scheme of things. It's part of the journey itself. It's not the journey. We need to remember that when they crucified Jesus, that looked at the time like the biggest failure of God's plan ever. And for a few days, that was the mood and the attitude of everybody. But we know differently. Out of failure, God can turn things around because we can't see what he's doing. And next slide, please. Sin isn't fatal. Thank you, Jesus. Achan did something really, really terrible. This wasn't petty pilfering. This wasn't uh, a bit of looting by a victorious army. And he wasn't rescuing something that was destined for the recycling bin or the incinerator. This wasn't previous loved or um, a bit of yeah, useful uh, recycling of equipment. This was Achan taking things that had been devoted to God, which means they'd been claimed by God for himself. They were his. They were his property. He had made them sacred because he said, this is mine. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. And so Achan did something really, really wrong. In the eyes of the Israelites, even we can probably recognize it as well. It's just a daft thing to do. But temptation got a hold. He saw it. He liked it. He took it, as the words he used. There is a lie in society which gets accepted a lot like the success lie that sin is a personal and private thing something that only affects and damages the person who does it the committing of the sin but that isn't the truth or reality and we know that you know, it's common sense we see it every day everywhere around the world that's, that whether it's stealing or lying or cheating or abuse or even worse than that it affects people around the person doing it. Now, God was at war with sin in the promised land. When he took the people in there, he wasn't just providing a nice place for his Israelites to live. He was cleaning up Canaan. And he was using the Israelites to do it. And they would then take it over after he had gone, or after, after, it was, after the job was done, and maintain it at that level. And that's why you look further into Old Testament, when the Israelites started getting it wrong, God started getting a bit unhappy with the Israelites. It wasn't just about dealing with things. For Achan, the price was high. The price for him was death, because that's how it was in the Old Testament times. For humanity to now, because we're in New Testament or post-New Testament times, Sin for us now means spiritual death rather than physical death. I mean, we don't have a pile of stones at the entrance just in case things go wrong here. We have a different way with Christ. Jesus takes care of our sin. Jesus takes care of our sin is what we say all the time in church. You know, this is a good piece of news. It's why it's called the good news because we don't have to find out things and do a sacrifice anymore. Jesus became that one sacrifice once to take care of every sin anyone ever made again.
And what we mustn't do, even when we're believers, even when we accepted Christ into our lives, what we mustn't do is try and hide the sin. Deny it, ignore it, bury it in our tent. Because it will gradually corrupt us. If we leave unattended sin around, it will be like an acid in a metal can or a bacteria under your plaster. It will infect and grow and make the arm be cut off eventually. The verse about yeast in the bread comes to mind where just a little goes a long way. We need to deal with sin personally. And there's a danger when churches start to do well like any organization where it sees success and that people get um, a little bit forgetful of who's responsible for the success and their activities and goals become more important than developing a character worthy of God. That spending time with their savior becomes a lower priority than the program they're working on. Now, it may or may not be significant, but in that passage, when it shows um, Joshua saying to the troops, okay, let's go, we're going to go to AI, and the spy said it's going to be a walkover, let's just do it. There's no mention there of Joshua talking to God and saying, what do you think about this plan? He did it before with Jericho and crossing Jordan, and God said, yeah, go ahead and do it. But he didn't do it in this case. He did do it at the end. And that's when they went back to Ai and they won and they conquered it and they had the spoils. So asking God what we should do next is a wise thing to do when you've got big decisions and even little decisions. So because of Jesus, sin isn't fatal. Jesus made a way for us to repent. So when we do get it wrong, we have a way back. We have a way to get restored and start again. A fresh piece of wood, if you like. So, he says, trying to infer wrapping up. Modern culture has convinced people in our world, enough people in our world, that being successful in all that we do is great and will make us happy. And there's a belief even that it's essential to be successful. Whether at work or at home, on the playing field, in your sport, as a parent, as a church leader, as a preacher, it all gets inveigled into our psyche. I don't believe that's true. Do them well? Yes, definitely. Do them well as you'd serve God, given your best. But strive for success above all else? No, I don't think so. I have a feeling that God actually cares diddly squat about us having success in these areas. I have a feeling the one area that we don't mention very much is actually the important one in God's terms. We try to be a successful employee, the CV. We try to be a successful student, we try to be a successful mother and father, or athlete, or musician, or painter, or DIYer, or teacher. We all try to be successful. But does anyone ever hear of teaching about being a successful child? Someone who gets it right when they're listening to their father and obeying their father. Someone who owns up to their father when they've got it wrong or they've taken something they should have taken that wasn't theirs. 
Matthew 18 is Jesus talking. You might find it on the screen towards the back of the list. Well done. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. It's amplified version, so it's a little bit longer. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and set him before them and said, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, unless you repent, that is, change your inner self, your old way of thinking and live changed lives and become like children, trusting, humble and forgiving, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Joshua and the elders reacted to this tragedy, their potential annihilation, by seeking God and waiting for him to speak. Thankfully, we don't have those kind of scenarios or situations to deal with, but nonetheless, we have, on a different scale, problems, difficulties and threats, things that don't go well. Laying prostrate on the ground with dust on your head and torn clothes isn't something we are called to do anymore, thankfully, but when you are desperate, when you are at the end of your tether, the Lord responds to desperation when you show him how troubled you are. He responds. They listened. When he responded, and they obeyed, and after the sin had been dealt with, God restored them. He put them back in charge. He put them back on the conquering road because they'd learned a lesson And that's why this big chunk of Joshua is in here, because it's a lesson about not getting overconfident in your own ability, in what your successes have been, but about dependence on God. So failure wasn't the final outcome, and it needn't be ever for us. So I cannot promise you victory over your circumstances. I'm sorry. I wish I could, but I can't. When God's on your side, it will feel like it. Now, we are going to have something now. Opportunity is all it is. Not to tear clothes and throw dust on your head, but to wait on God for him to respond to you if you are desperate, if you are in desperation for something. Now, perhaps your life feels like it's a series of failures And there's a little voice in your ear repeating, you are such a failure. There's a place here for restoration. Somewhere at the front. Come and stand here. Could it be that the possibility of failure just makes you want to hide and reject and not do anything at all? There's a place here for courage to receive. Is it so much striving to be good at what you're doing as a servant of God is just making it become too big for your life and blotting God out and you just find he's faded a bit. There's a place here for restoration and restatement and recalibration. Or maybe you just haven't come across Jesus yet and he's not in your life and you're wondering what this is all about but it sounds interesting. There's a spot just here at the front 
Or maybe you just don't know why Jesus faded from your life. There's a place here to receive again, to restart. There's a place here to stand and to receive from God. You don't need to lie down on the floor. There is a place here to be rebooted, to restart, to rekindle the flame, to all those things which mean and require a little bit of humility and surrender and a chunk of courage. And that's what it's all about. The courage to come and do these things and to face where you are and where you want to be next. So let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm shocked at the time and I'm sorry. But if you want to do something now, it's your turn. Lord, it's all up to you to bring people to not bring people. Success is about you and not about what I've done. So Lord, please, through your spirit now, as we sing, as we're quiet for a little while first, do your work. Work in your hearts. Work in the ground that's been broken up, the seeds. listening to this week's talk. Join us next week for another inspirational message.